Part Four, Section Four of the Trial of Callista Blake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trial of Callista Blake by Edgar Pangborn. Part Four, Section Four. Edith Nolan pressed her fingertips over her eyes, grown tired from work. Possibly when she opened them and looked again at the broad sheet of drawing paper on the table, she would know whether her curious urgency of the last hour, the sense of good achievement that had driven her to this exhaustion, had been something more than self-deception. A glance at her wristwatch before she closed away vision had told her it was past one in the morning. Time to quit, if she was not to arrive for the next courtroom session, hopelessly unintelligent from weariness and lack of sleep. She lowered her hands, looking very briefly down. The faces, hands, shadows of the big drawing did leap astonishingly into life. But she said half aloud, Not yet. She got up without another look at it and crossed the room to stand, huddling in the blue bathrobe, stiff and a little cold, before Callista's watercolor of a pine tree on a windy hill. She could not quite see Callista's vision, or not as much as if she wished. She resisted a while longer the pull of what waited for her back at the drawing table. It may be, she thought. This once I just may have done it. In the past, no work of her own had ever pleased Edith Nolan enough to give her a complete sense of belonging by natural right in that small company who can now and then draw from the confusion of the world's raw material a new synthesis, a work of disciplined imagination worthy to last a while. She knew the company in books, music, painting, and in at least one other person, Callista who belonged there so inevitably that the girl had probably never even wondered whether she had a right to call herself an artist. In need of hard work and long study, yes, but Callista knew it, and while she had struggled and learned and enjoyed the struggle, she had still been drawing and painting as naturally as a robin sings in the morning. Sam Granger had considered that he did not belong, I'm a performer, he said once, so I may get well to do some day, and a performer, as of course you've noticed, Red Top, can be an awful nice guy, but, but God damn it, I can't compose, and I have a most un-American impulse to get down and lick the boots of anyone who can. She remembered saying, Why, you're creative. Sam had just grunted, inarticulately annoyed. In those days, Edith had not been fully aware of the dismal condition rapidly overtaking that once honorable word, and Sam had been surprisingly insensitive to words and the rich, changeable life of words, as if he could hear only one kind of music, or believed other kinds irrelevant. Nowadays, Edith's skin crawled when the corpse of the word creative was being kicked around. It gave off a squashy noise, was almost as offensively decayed as the corpse of heritage. 
Today everything's creative, including beauty culture, business letters, and the application of new superlatives to old laxatives. There was, Edith had heard, an operation known as creative selling. We wait, perhaps, she thought, for the day when the market will offer a creative toilet as an aid to positive thinking. Reluctant, not quite frightened, Edith returned to the drawing table and looked down at the twelve pen-and-ink faces. They returned the gaze with intensity, with the force, savor, complexity of an authentic life that no exploration could ever exhaust. But my hand? My hand? Certainly no other. Technique, of course. That much, after long effort of years, Edith could take for granted. But this, wasn't it beyond technique? For the first time that evening, it had been nowhere near her while she was deep in work. Edith recalled Damier's The Jury. She took down the volume of his work, not trusting memory. After the comparison, she could say, no, a round, unworried, satisfying no. This curious thing of her own, this hating, fearing, loving, pitying distillation of the jury in People versus Blake, owed no more to Damier, or to Callista, than any work should honestly owe to whatever the artist has encountered in the past. Conception, development, fulfillment, unmistakably a Nolan original. Perhaps the first. The drawing frightened her then in a different way, grown temporarily larger than her mind's resistance. These people were all looking at her, as the twelve faces of flesh and blood had seemed to for a moment in the afternoon, when someone in the row behind her had a loud coughing spell. They looked at her now, bloated Hogue and ancient Emerson Lake, and cloth-brained Emma Beals, and kindly Helen Butler, and by a trick of her exhausted mind they made her no longer Edith Nolan, but a woman at the defense table, whose life would end or begin afresh somehow, according to the will of those twelve imperfect beings. Who meant well, who wanted to do the right thing, whatever that was, who, except maybe Hogue, wouldn't dream of turpentining a dog, or pulling the wings off flies, or starving a child. She forced herself out of that illusion. Well, the illusion was at least fair evidence of power in the work. She warned herself, Discount everything. Tired. The illusion is strong because of personal involvement in People versus Blake. By morning, the pen and ink may be ashes. But leaving it, turning out the light, Edith almost knew that it would not. And she marveled, with something like the wonder of a child to whom all discovery is fresh and nothing worn down to the stale and bromidic, at the stubborn power of life to draw out of mold and decay an oak tree or a flower. Out of confusion or sorrow, a work of enduring good. End of Part 4, Section 4 Recording by Roger Moline
End of part four, 